If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name's Thomas Jones and this week I'm talking to my colleague Deborah Friedel, a contributing editor at the LRB, who has a piece in the current issue on the Rosenberg trial. It's a review of a book by Anne Seber called Ethel Rosenberg, A Cold War Tragedy. Hello, Deborah, and thank you very much for joining me. Hello, Tom. Thank you. So Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, a married couple, were tried for treason in a US federal court in 1951, accused of spying for the Soviet Union. They were found guilty and executed two years later. What was it that they were supposed to have done, or what was it they did? Well, I I should say quickly that they weren't actually tried for treason. They were convicted of conspiracy to commit espionage. But the line about them, I I think this is the jurist, Felix Frankfurter, was that they were tried for conspiracy to commit espionage, but when it came to sentencing, they were treated as though they had been convicted of treason. And indeed, still in books, sometimes it'll say that they were convicted of treason. But it's not quite right. So the prosecution argued that they had run a spy ring and that one of Julius Rosenberg's recruits was the younger brother of Ethel. And he had been a machinist during the war at Los Alamos. And the prosecution argued that he had stolen the secret of the bomb as though there were such a thing, like, you know, like a recipe in a drawer, how to make an atomic bomb, and that he had passed it both directly to Julius, who then had passed it up to you know, his superiors and Soviet intelligence, and that also Ethel's brother David had met with a courier in addition to Julius, and that he had passed information up. Um, um, did, was this all supposed to have taken place during the, during the war, when the Soviet Union and the US were allies? Yes. So Julius starts off as a source. He, he's working during the war um, as an engineer inspecting electronics factories. And he gets a lot of information about aircraft, about different ways of distinguishing between friendly and unfriendly aircraft. And he starts giving manuals and documents all the time to his Russian handler, Alexander Falkoslov. I think his biggest coup was that he was able to take a working proximity fuse from a factory, brought it out on Christmas Eve when security was lax. And this was considered, at the time, the first great smart weapon. And you know the Americans were said to have spent a billion dollars in money then, not adjusted for inflation, to create the proximity fuse. And giving it to the Russians was an amazing accomplishment. And yet the Russians thought that he might be even more valuable as a handler of other spies. As an American citizen, he could travel much more easily than his handler, Feklosov, who was a Russian. Julius had been an engineering student at City University in New York and had lots of friends who were around his age, also engineering students, also involved in war work. And apparently he, he was very good at recruiting people. He he knew to tell them that what they were doing wasn't, in his mind, really spying. The Russians were their allies. His line was that the Russians are giving everything they have 
in the fight against fascism and that the Americans, you know, weren't really holding up their end, that they were, you know, sending money to the Soviet Union, but not as much as they were sending to Britain, that they were sending equipment, but not their best. And the feeling was that, you know, why should Russia have to spend any money on developing military weapons when, you know, their allies should be sharing it? So they were working because it was war work. I mean, everything was involved in was war work, wasn't it? They're all so this knowledge, even to call it secrets. I mean, maybe you can t- <laughs> they, they you can see from their point of view they were they were sharing knowledge with an ally. So the idea that this is a a spy ring with conspiracies to commit espionage that in Julius Rosenberg's head, right? In in, in his mind, that said, they did act, you know, like spies. There's this, I, I think, wonderful memoir by Alexander Fekoslov called um, The Man Behind the Rosenbergs. And the way he describes how they got these secrets, you know, from the factories back to the Soviet Union, reads almost more like a Hollywood version of spycraft than a sort of darker, gloomier take from a Lacare novel. I mean, Julius would use a camera to, you know, make microfilm and they would do these... What Julius found really enjoyable, sort of, you know, secret brush passes on overcrowded buses and in the back rows of movie theaters and of boxing jouts. And I mean, Julius was very aware that he was doing something illegal and and dangerous and that it required these secret elaborate procedures, which he really enjoyed. I mean, I think he seems to have almost found it like a game. And did these, his activities continue after the end of the of the war after 1945? I don't think so. His handler, Fekosov, went back to Leningrad. He was still contactable by Russian intelligence, but as far as we know, he, he wasn't still active after the war. So, I mean, it's clear that Julius, he was giving 600 documents to, to Fekosov a week. He was, he was clearly, he was spying for the Soviet Union. There we go. How much was Ethel involved in that? Was she a Soviet spy? Was she was she a conspirator? So this is the big question. And Seba, in her biography, stresses that during the years in which Julius is running the spy ring, Ethel's very busy. She has two small children. She's really devoted to trying to be a good parent in the way that she felt she hadn't been well-parented. She's always taking classes on childhood development and child psychology. She's taking music lessons to teach her children music. She's seeing an analyst several times a week. In Feklasov's memoir, she doesn't appear they never met, but you do sense that she's aware of her husband's activities and, and approves. There are a few moments when Feklasov gives presents Christmas presents to Julius, which includes, you know, present for Ethel. And there's no suggestion that she wouldn't have known that that present was for her. You know, it was a handbag. Okay, but being given a handbag by a, someone who works for the Soviet government isn't a crime. Right. I mean, you can't, there's, I mean, and even knowing about them isn't enough, is it? She had to, and there was this connection with her brother. Was, was yeah, the, so we don't actually know what happened. Her brother and sister-in-law testified that Ethel had been very involved indeed in her brother's recruitment, that she persuaded her sister-in-law in New York to go to New Mexico to see David and to ask David if he would participate in the spy ring. 
And everything we know about Ethel's relationship with her brother and her husband makes me think it's very likely that she was part of that discussion, which doesn't rise to you know a legal standard of being certain that she had been. And there was no evidence that she had been involved apart from the testimony of her brother and sister-in-law, which was really suspect. I mean, we know now, as Ethel's lawyers didn't know at the time, that her brother had changed his story almost every time he was interviewed by the FBI. He and his sister-in-law told slightly different stories when they testified to a grand jury. At first, they hadn't made Ethel seemed involved at all, and then increasingly made her seem like a critical component of the spy ring. The FBI had this weird profile. They had this idea that in communist marriages, the wife is the more dominant partner, and that you know possibly Julius was the slave and Ethel was the master. And it's you know the, the fact that Ethel was just a few years older, I think three years older than Julius, didn't help. And she was even falsely sometimes portrayed as being taller. And Eisenhower definitely thought that she was probably the one pulling all the strings. I mean, almost, you know, no. I mean, that, that's just, that's not what happened. And, and we know from NSA intercepts and from Feklasov's memoir that that's not what happened. And also, you know, in recent years, certain members of Julius's ring have given sort of frank interviews. Morton Sobel, who was on trial with the Rosenbergs, admitted shortly before his death that, indeed, he'd been a spy, that what was said about Julius was true, but that he wasn't sure how involved Ethel had been, that probably she had known that Julius was a spy, and that had been it. That had been the extent. The Rosenbergs' children certainly very much are pushing for Ethel to be exonerated. They've acknowledged that Julius was a spy, but they feel strongly that Ethel was guilty of only being his wife. If I remember the jury now, I would have to say, sure. You know, I'm not certain you know, beyond a reasonable doubt that Ethel had been involved in the conspiracy. If it's a lower bar, if I were writing a historical novel like Hilary Mantel, I think I would probably say that it's very likely that Ethel had been a little involved, that she may well have persuaded her sister-in-law to recruit her brother at Los Alamos, that she might even have typed David's notes about the bomb, because we know that Ethel had a typewriter. She had done Julius's typing before. There was one account that she may have worked as a lookout for Julius once, though that's not very well sourced, but that she was a full member of the spy ring you know, we now know is certainly not true. But they were, as you say, they were both executed. And Ethel Rosenberg was the first woman to be executed for a federal crime in 100 years or something. Is that right? Yeah. So the, the last woman before her was Mary Surratt, who'd been involved in the assassination of President Lincoln. That's sort of how rare it was and the sort of crime I think that people thought would have been necessary to to, to be sentenced to death by a federal judge. Because, and as you say in the piece that Eisenhower did think about, I'm going to get the words again wrong again, either commuting the sentence or, or pardoning her, or whatever it would be. But the worry then, as you say, was that the Soviet Union would recruit exclusively women spies in America because if they, they knew they weren't going to be executed. Yeah, exactly. Eisenhower 
wrote movingly to his son about how he, he really didn't want to see a woman, particularly a mother, executed. But he was worried that the Soviets would think that he was weak if he didn't do it. And like you say, he had this idea, which sounds bizarre, that if they showed mercy to Ethel, suddenly, you know, there'd be dozens of women all around the country being recruited for espionage and that he needed to nip this in the bud. So when were they, they were put, put on trial in 1951 and presumably they were arrested quite soon before that. So how, how did they get caught? If they'd stopped you know, six years after the end of the war, they must have thought they'd got away with it. Yeah, so I think Julius's first sign that, that things weren't going so well was sometime after it was clear that the Russians had the bomb, which was in 1949. They had a successful test over what's now Kazakhstan. The Americans were absolutely persuaded that, you know, the Russians couldn't have come by it on their own. I mean, there was such American chauvinism that the Russians couldn't even make a jeep, as someone said. And the fact that the bomb was sort of similar in design to the one that had been dropped over Nagasaki also made them more confident. As in fact they had, because Klaus Fuchs had given, who worked at Los Alamos and on the Manhattan Project, had given exactly information that enabled them to do it. So the Americans weren't wrong to think that they, that the Russians had taken it from them. Right. So you know, Klaus Fuchs, who's you know a very senior, eminent physicist at Los Alamos, a German communist, had painstakingly been able to give you know really good information and also answered questions from Soviet scientists. I mean, there is a question about, you know, whether the Russians would have inevitably had the bomb, and, and almost certainly they, they would have. I think Fuchs thought he may have helped speed them up by, at most, a couple years, that he helped them from going down a few dead ends and was able to answer questions that might save them a few months here and there. Incidentally, I mean, since he was tried in Britain, he ended up serving, I think, less than 10 years before getting to live out his life in East Germany. But the Americans, they wanted more than that. And Klaus Fuchs had used the same courier as David Greenglass, Ethel's brother, in New Mexico, that when this courier had once gone to meet with Fuchs, he'd also met with David Greenglass. And that was possibly the, the weak link that exposed Julius's ring when that go-between, who was an American chemist, was arrested and his picture was on the front pages of all the New York papers, Julius realized, oops, that if that man gave names, he would be able to implicate David Gwinglass and then possibly the whole ring would be exposed. And then let's go back in time a bit now to talk about who the, who the Rosenbergs were and how they came to be, become members of the Communist Party and, and and so on. So you said that Julius studied at City College in New York, but but as well as that, who, where, where, and when was he born? And so on. Both Julius and Ethel were raised on the Lower East Side of New York. Julius was born in 1918. Um, Ethel a few years before. And if the names were blacked out, I think for you know almost maybe the first quarter of the book, you would think you were reading about any sort of poor Jew in New York, you know, one of my relatives. It's what you are, are used to reading, but, it, you know, in a sort of rags-to-riches story. E Ethel grows up in a tenement. Her father repairs sewing machines, and the whole family lives 
in this ground floor apartment uh, behind the store. And it's miserable. You know, it's a cold water flat. They're, I think, across the street from a stable. So it, you know, always smells horrible. Her mother is illiterate and she's able to go to New York public schools, which were wonderful. And there was definitely, she felt a, a gap between her experience and her mother's that made their relationship very difficult. And she loved theater. She performed in a very well-regarded choir, you know, that performed at the Met and at Carnegie Hall and wanted to be an actress. And if you didn't know better, you would think, oh, you know, I know what's going to happen. She's going to go to Hollywood and change her name to something anglicized. And that's the sort of American story I, I'm used to reading, particularly if someone's eminent enough to have a biography written about them. And Julius, very similar background. Parents are immigrants from Russia. And he, I think, was a very serious Hebrew school student growing up. I think some of his teachers thought he might even be a rabbi. But at some point, I think when he was a teenager, he becomes very involved in radical left-wing politics. There's a nice story about him that when he, I think, was finishing high school, worked part-time in a pharmacy in Harlem, uptown. And it was a pharmacy that served, you know, predominantly African-American customers. And apparently he was really affected by how he, he realized, you know, how these customers were being exploited. He, he saw that they were being charged so much more money for the same products that were cheaper in white neighborhoods. And supposedly once he witnessed a black man being hit by a city bus and the man was bleeding to death and brought into the pharmacy where Julius was. And he watched this man die in front of him while it took more than an hour for an ambulance to arrive. And Julius was certain that, you know, if this man had been in a white neighborhood, the ambulance would have come sooner. He might not have died. And he was, you know, passionately anti-racist at the risk of sounding anachronistic. And I think he was really moved by how the Communist Party had made anti-Semitism illegal and said that they were against racism and were going to improve the lot, he said, for the common man. He was coming of age during the Depression. I, you know, a lot of people on the Lower East Side were sympathetic to those views. And presumably also then when he went to the City College of New York, that there would have been a lot of radical politics there as well. Yeah, so City College in the 30s was amazing that way. I mean, there's a According to lore, the cafeteria at City College was the one place in the world where the pro-Stalinist left and the anti-Stalinist left could meet and hash things out. And you know, my, my grandfather was there at the same time, claims that he took no part in this and just played ping pong between classes. But he was very much aware that you know, everyone else was obsessed with the state of the world. And Julius was... He managed to graduate with an engineering degree, was not a great student because I think he was more interested in politics than doing his homework. And Ethel, who, who became his girlfriend early, I think he was a freshman when they met, really helped him through and you know typed his notes and prodded him along. Was she a student as well? No. So when she graduated high school during the Depression, I think she would have loved to have gone to college and there were options for women 
in New York, but she had to work and considered herself lucky to get a job at the, you know, it was called the National New York Packing and Shipping Company. And men did most of the work with boxes and women wrote receipts. And I think sometime when she was there was when she really became interested, um, certainly in the labor movement, and, and almost certainly joined the, the Communist Party and certainly went to rallies and events. And did, where did they meet? So they met when Ethel was singing at a fundraising drive uh, to support American volunteers who'd gone to fight with the Republicans in Spain. Yeah, so they, they met and they got married. And then at some point during the war, when Julius by this point was had a job, some kind of engineering job, and there are two versions of it in your, that you tell in your piece, that one, that, that according to Ethel's brother David, he, he went went and knocked on the door of the Russian consulate and said, hello, can I be a spy? The other <laughs> slightly more likely story is that Soviet intelligence recruited him during a Labor Day rally in 1942 when he was, at, when he was in the Army Signal Corps. That's, I mean, which do you think is more likely? I mean, it sounds from the piece that you think it was more likely that Soviet intelligence approached him rather than that he went to them. Yeah, I mean, what, what, what seems likely is that, I mean, Julius had a, a friend who was definitely a liaison between the American Communist Party and, and Russian intelligence, and that he realized that Julius, as an engineer, might be useful. He was certain that Julius was, was committed and serious. Feklasov, the Soviet handler, describes this sort of, you know, wonderful golden period for Russian intelligence in America during the war, that it was sort of the one moment when you didn't need to pay people to give you secrets. They were absolutely committed to defeating fascism through helping the Soviet Union. And that whereas before the war and after, usually you would have to resort to blackmail or to paying people off in order to spy for you. And there would be people who you weren't even entirely sure that they would be giving you the best information because they weren't committed. That could be put aside. And during the war, you would get these really fabulous engineers. But one of the things that they wanted is for him, didn't they? They asked him to like stop going to Communist Party meetings and to, to play down his links because it would draw suspicion on him. And he wasn't very happy about that because he had to, in order to do the secret work, he had to pretend to be less committed than he was in public. Oh, and he, and he hated that. I mean, he loved going to, to rallies. He, I think he was allowed to keep paying his party dues, but he had to do it through another name. And, and he didn't find it so easy. I mean, there's a funny story about you know, him running into his handler sort of unexpectedly and yelling out, hello, comrade, because he was so happy to, to see him. And Feklasov really seems to have genuinely liked him. He liked the you know, Julius didn't want to be taken to expensive restaurants and certainly not given good wine because he felt our countries are at war. That would be obscene. I mean, is there a sense, I mean, I, you possibly can't answer this because who would know, but the ease with which these, I mean, is there a sense in which the American authorities were maybe not that bothered about the information that someone like Rosenberg, I mean, he wasn't involved on the Manhattan Project. He wasn't working with, he didn't know anything about nuclear weapons. That actually, if the, that, the, that kind of, level that we're of, of information, informal information sharing with what was in fact an American ally. And I mean, the Americans really needed the Soviet Union to win the war in the East, that maybe they turned a blind eye to it. And it was only that he was able to get away. I mean, how, you know, he kind of hiding things behind a box and taking it out on Christmas Eve when no one's looking. Is it possible that the American authorities weren't too worried 
about the kind of activity he was involved in during the war. And it was only afterwards, once the Cold War had begun, that retrospectively they decided that it needed cracking down on. Well, I think part of the problem was that during the war, the FBI was stretched so thin because they had to care more about intelligence going to, to Axis powers. So they definitely were busier worrying about Japanese Americans, German Americans. And it's true that Julius Rosenberg, almost just by being an American citizen, was able to escape the kind of scrutiny that he should have and probably would have been after the war. Someone could have easily done a background check that would have revealed just how lefty he was. That said, if you had taken everyone who is lefty and not allowed them to deal with war work, I mean, you would have been down tens of thousands of men. I mean, I suppose the other sort of less generous the FBI way of putting that is they were so busy rounding up and interning entirely innocent Japanese Americans that they didn't notice this kind of flagrant secret exchanges going on under their noses. But obviously that did all, it did all change after the, the end of the war. And the, you know, the Nazis were no longer the enemy. And of course, lots of Nazi scientists were recruited and had their backgrounds cleaned up. And, you know, Werner von Braun went from being running slave labor camps, building V2s to becoming the head of NASA and a kind of children's TV personality in the 80s. So there's the switch between who they were and then the communists. By the time they were arrested in, in the 1950s, the communists were the enemies. And one of the things you say in your piece is that people almost blamed the Korean War on the Rosenbergs. Uh, so this becomes an important issue during their sentencing, where the judge, Irving Kaufman, says, I think what you did was worse than murder. And I think at, at that point, there had been more than you know 50,000 American casualties in the Korean War. And the judge said, this could all be your fault. I think he had a theory that if the Soviets hadn't had the bomb, they would have been so meek and cowed to you know, American power that they never would have had the confidence to interfere in affairs in East Asia. <laughs> you could say, by if America didn't have the bomb, they wouldn't have interfered in East Asia either. And it was the, the, it was the fault of the American interference that led to those deaths. But obviously, not. You're not going to get a federal judge saying that in 1951. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B two B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. So, how many of the the so-called spy ring, if we're going to call it that, of, of Judas's friends, colleagues who were also involved. How many of them were, were arrested and put on trial? Did most of them escape? So we think that he probably had about eight to 12 other engineers who, who were helping him and taking pamphlets and documents and training manuals from wherever they worked. 
one of them, Morton Sobel, was arrested and put on trial with Julius and Ethel. And he had given Julius a lot of material during the war. And when Julius was arrested, I think he, he panicked and he went to Mexico City and went to the Soviet embassy there thinking they would be able to, to get him out. But what he didn't realize was that the Russians were under surveillance by the Americans. Really what he should have done is what two other members of the spy ring did, which is instead of going directly to the Russians, you go to Mexico City, go to a Polish information office, which you have confidence is really Polish intelligence, and get them to give a message to the Russians. And then from Mexico City, they'll give you a passport that can take you probably to Sweden or Scandinavia, and then you fly to Prague, and then you go to Moscow. And two of the members of Julius's ring ended up having really fruitful professional lives in Russia. I think they started Russia's equivalent of Silicon Valley and were very involved in internet-connected computers. Other members of the ring seem to have just gone on to have normal American lives. What's interesting is that we've now, we now know, and we've known since the mid-1990s, that the American, what became the NSA, knew that Julius had given secrets to the Russians. They knew the names of his spy ring, but they didn't want to let on that they were able to read diplomatic cables between different Russian offices in the U.S. They were actually willing for almost the whole spy ring, to go about their business, not be arrested. But it's very possible that they may have used that information to get Klaus Fuchs and may have used it to get Julius Rosenberg and claimed that they had gotten the information another way. That the, the NSA tra- intercepts you know, weren't released during the trial. So if anything, the federal case against Julius and Ethel was even stronger than they or, or anyone knew at the time. And would the judge have known? Would they have? No. No, so, so they wouldn't have been, the, because the strange, the apparent mismatch between the, the guilty, but what they were found guilty of and what they were sentenced for, and there's sort of the difference between those crimes. There's no possibility that someone from the NSA would have had a quiet word with the judge to say, they've done more than you know, or you believe in the separation of powers. What we know is that this was really top secret. I mean, apparently the president didn't even know. Though it's very, it seems very likely that Hoover, the head of the FBI, may have may have known. Okay. Well, I like to imagine Hoover whispering in the in the ear of the judge, saying, "You know, you need to give these guys the chair. Just trust me." Well, actually, Hoover was really opposed to the Rosenbergs being executed. Hoover had a sense that even though I think more than seventy percent of Americans polled said they wanted the Rosenbergs to die, Hoover had a feeling within a few years people are going to be horrified. And also, he, he had a sense, correctly, that the rest of the world was going to be horrified, that America was going to look terrible in their sort of beauty pageant with the Russians, and that ultimately, he, he wanted them to talk. He wanted them to give the names that he probably knew that they could give, and to give information about how Soviet recruitment had worked. He didn't want to kill them. And after Ethel was electrocuted... Some time after, um, someone in the Justice Department said, she called our bluff. We didn't want them to die. We, we wanted them to talk. And presumably, they, one of the things they wanted them to talk about was the information that they already had from these intercepts, but they needed to have another source for it. Was there some sense in which they were trying to get information from the Rosenbergs that they already had from the, their secret source? 
Certainly in the case of Julius, I, I think that that's what they wanted. I mean, the night that the Rosenbergs were executed, at least six FBI agents went to the prison to Sing Sing, and they had questions that they wanted to ask him. And I, and I think that that's what they were going to try to elicit. In Ethel's case, they really were less confident that she knew anything. They didn't have any questions prepared for her. And one of the questions they had prepared for Julius was, was your wife cognizant of your activities? I mean, I think in her case, this is unclear, but it seems almost certain that they would have been satisfied with just an admission from her that her husband had been a spy. You know, they wouldn't even admit that they were communists. And because they weren't willing to say that they were communists, they, they made some things quite difficult for themselves. The Soviet Union wouldn't come out and support them. Well, that wouldn't have helped. I mean, but, but the, the, the American Communist Party would have been able to, you know, give them a good legal defense. And there would have been thousands of people donating money and rallying to their support. And, and that didn't happen. I mean, the sort of support they received came after they were already sentenced. And in most ways was too late. I mean, I, was, I mean, there's also the question of why did, if Ethel had been, I mean, I know this is sort of not a fair, fair line of reasoning, really, but if she had been innocent, she could have said, I had no idea of the extent of it. And she could have saved herself and Julius, you know, even if Julius had been executed, their children would have still had a mother. But she didn't. She kind of, I mean, I know, I know that you're not allowed to think this, but you could say that her, her sort of her silence is, could be taken as evidence of her of her guilt, historically, if not legally. And Seba, her biographer, I, I think sees it as very romantic that Ethel was so in love with her husband that she'd rather die with him than say anything against him, even if it would have meant that her children wouldn't have been orphaned. So what what happened to their children? Were they brought up by David and Ruth? Uh, no, that, that would not have, have happened. So what was interesting was after the Rosenbergs were sentenced, it seems as though Ethel's mother tried to use Ethel's fear about what would happen to the children as a way to coerce her into doing what Ethel's mother wanted, which was for Ethel to divorce Julius, denounce him, do everything she could to to save herself, to to be reunited with her children. And so we know that the, the Rosenbergs sons spent some time in an orphanage that, you know, no one in their extended family was willing to take them in. And then after the Rosenbergs were executed, it it took a little while for it to be sorted out. Apparently, there were people who really wanted, um, in the government, who really wanted the Rosenberg sons to be institutionalized, possibly as to to add to the punishment. Is it what they would have inherited, what their deviant parents' politics? Yeah. There's a, a very good documentary by Ivy Mirapol, who's the the granddaughter of Julius and Ethel, called Heir to an Execution. And she interviews her her father and uncle about those years. And what what happened is is sort of amazing. They end up being adopted by Abel Mirapol and and his wife, who was a nursery school teacher. And Mirapol was the lyricist for Strange Fruit. He'd been a Communist Party member who left the party possibly for professional reasons, but by all accounts and and by the accounts of his adopted sons, was the warmest, most loving, funniest person they could have imagined. Their adopted mother had good experience working with children with emotional difficulties. 
And there's this sort of stunning moment at the end of the documentary in, in which Michael Maripol, the, the older son, says, ooh, hand on his heart, possibly things worked out for the best, and, you know, as far as his own life was concerned, that if his parents, if, if Ethel and Julius had cooperated with the government, he would have lived his life like being the son of Osama bin Laden. You know, they would have had to been in hiding and he would have been ashamed of his parents. So you mentioned the trial judge earlier, Irving Kaufman. Could you tell us a little bit more about him? The judge was only 40 years old. I think he may have been the youngest federal judge at that time. And he was ambitious. He, he was on the make. He cared very much about his reputation. There was a theory then that the Supreme Court would save one seat and not more than one for a Jew. And in those years, it was Felix Frankfurter. And Felix Frankfurter was so horrified by how Kaufman behaved during the Rosenberg trial that Frankfurter said that he would live on forever in spite and never retire you know, if it meant that there was a chance that Kaufman would get his seat. I mean, what really bothered Frankfurter apparently was that when Kaufman did the sentencing, he claimed that he'd prayed to God for the answer of, of how to sentence the Rosenbergs. And, and Frankfurter found this appalling. And Kaufman never did become a Supreme Court justice. How far, how far did he get? Yeah, no, he, he did pretty well. I mean, he ended up you know, on the appellate court. But th this was definitely, he knew, going to be the first line of his obituary. And apparently he, he worried a bit after sentencing that he, he might have made an error. And there's some suggestion that he might have even been in favor of a presidential pardon. But you can't sentence someone to death hoping that the president's going to pardon them. That's a, that's a risky... <laughs> A risky move. On the question of presidential pardons, that the, um, as you say in your piece, that one of the prosecution lawyers was, was Roy Cohn, who is more famous for being Donald Trump's lawyer, among other things. Do you want to talk a bit about his post-Rosenberg career? Oh, and, and let's talk a little bit about what he did during the trial, too. So Cohn was early 20s on this case. He did the direct examination of, of David Greenglass. And the problem with Cohn is that he's such a self-mythologizer. It's, it's hard always to know whether he's telling the truth about anything. But he claimed that he'd fixed it that for Kaufman to be the judge on the case. Cohn was well-connected. Cohn claimed that the judge had been in touch with him secretly on the phone throughout the trial and certainly when considering sentencing, which is, of course, highly improper ex parte communication. I mean, that would have been grounds alone for a mistrial if that were the case. And when, was, when, did, Cohen make, when did he make these claims? A long, long time after? Yeah, to, to his biographer, you know, some decades later. And so he claimed that he was talking to the, to the judge. And... Yeah, Cohn had a, made an early specialty of prosecuting communists, usually for attempted overthrow of the US government. After the Rosenberg trial, he takes on a major role in Senator McCarthy's anti-communist hearings. Cohn was gay himself, but he seemed to have particular relish for going after suspected homosexuals in the federal government. He pushed for there to be a rule that no one who is gay should be allowed to serve in the government because they might be susceptible to Soviet blackmail. And then after his years as an anti-communist prosecutor, he ends up in private practice, making a name for himself as a fixer 
for prominent New Yorkers that he was the sort of guy who could make someone mayor. Almost certainly he was involved in helping Donald Trump's sister become a federal judge. And he was there for Trump in Trump's early career as a real estate developer, that he was the guy who could figure out a shady tax abatement or get you out of a bad tax situation. When Trump was sued by the federal government for violating the Fair Housing Act, Trump almost certainly took steps to prevent black tenants from moving into Trump properties. And the federal government went after him. And Cohn's sort of signature move was don't apologize, deny, and countersue, go on the counterattack. And Trump loved this. And after Cohn died in the 80s, Trump was always heard to say, where's my Roy Cohn? Who can fill this role for me? And it was not Jared Kushner to his displeasure. So he's, he's, Cohn was clearly a skillful operator. He wasn't too bothered about obeying the law himself. And obviously, he was a successful prosecutor of the Rosenbergs. How did that case play out? Was it very one-sided? Was it with the prosecution just far more gifted than the defense? In some ways, I think whenever a defendant goes against the federal government, you're going to be unmatched no matter how wealthy you are. The Justice Department has the whole FBI at their disposal. In this case, the Rosenbergs were at such a disadvantage. Their lawyers were a, a father and son team. Ethel's lawyer had never tried a criminal case before. He usually worked for the Furriers Union and also, I think, had a side specialty in sort of buying and selling bakeries. And the reason he became Ethel's lawyer was just the thought was that he'd be able to have easy communication with Julius's lawyer, his son, who, who was more experienced, though nothing like the sort of dazzling lawyer they, they would have needed. I mean, it's entirely possible that no matter how good their lawyers were, the result would have been the same. That said, there, there's certainly moments you can point to during the trial where they, they received either very bad advice or the lawyers themselves didn't behave as well as they should. To give one example, when the prosecution tried to admit into evidence a replica of a sketch of the bomb and a description of the bomb that David Greenglass said he'd given to the Soviets, Julius's lawyer objected. And he said the reason for his objection was that he worried that even at this late date, a foreign power might still be able to take advantage of this information. And apparently what the lawyer was thinking was he was playing to the jury. The jury would think that they were being super patriotic, even more patriotic than the prosecution were being. But actually, all they did was make the jury think that, yes, see, they, they did give the secret of the bomb to the Soviets. And the other thing is, presumably, was it the case then? Is it still now that you can only sit as a juror? One of the questions they ask you to see if you're suitable in a trial, which may, in a case that may carry the death penalty, is, is what your position is on capital punishment. And if you're against capital punishment, you can't sit as a juror. That, that's right. It's called having you know, a death-qualified jury still the case. I had a high school English teacher who was very upset when she wasn't allowed to sit on a murder trial. So there, there was an idea at the time that the prosecution was trying to keep off housewives. That, that doesn't actually seem to have been entirely the case, or, or rather they, they were trying to keep out housewives, but not because they thought that the women would be too sympathetic to Ethel, but because there was an idea 
that it was harder to have a trial if you had housewives because then you had to end punctually because the women had to run home to make supper for their families. It seems as though the prosecution was their line was they were you know they were going to keep off anyone who seemed like they might possibly be sympathetic to the left. They wanted to know about what publications people subscribe to and in their words wanted to keep off oddballs. But otherwise, it, it doesn't seem, even though there were no Jews, it doesn't seem as though they were exactly trying to prevent Jews from being on the jury. You said earlier that your grandfather was at City College at about the same time as J- Julius Rosenberg, or maybe at exactly the same time. Were people worried? Was your family worried that all Jewish Americans would be somehow tainted by the trial, that would, they would be suspected of disloyalty, that it would give rise to more anti-Semitism? Well, one of the remarkable things about the trial is that the judge was Jewish. Almost the entire prosecution team was also Jewish. And one of the jurors said that he was relieved that it had been what he called a Jewish show. And they said they were glad. It wasn't Christian against Jew. It was Jews taking down the Jews. And I actually think in a horrible way, a lot of American Jews were relieved that the judge and prosecutors were Jewish, that it was a sign that, look, you know, Jews can be loyal too. This trial is happening just a few years after the Holocaust. I I think so many American Jews, Jews around the world felt deeply vulnerable. And here's this couple who seem to be evidence that Jews can't be trusted. Jews aren't loyal citizens in the countries where they have citizenship. You know, I wish I could ask my grandparents to tell me how they felt about the Rosenbergs. The weird thing about Seba's biography for me was that I was very aware that the opening pages almost were describing their lives, that my grandfather and Julius Rosenberg were born in the same year, 1918. They were both poor boys in New York. They were both at City College at the same time. And the Rosenbergs would go on cheap dates where they'd walk across the bridge to New Jersey and they'd stay in the summer in bungalows in the Catskills, you know, just as my grandparents had. And I was almost trying to work out why weren't my grandparents communists like the Rosenbergs? And all I could sort of work out was that they had this, my my grandparents had this optimism that things were going to get better in America, that prosperity and civil rights were coming. My grandmother had this idea, I think, even during the Depression, that their lives were, were always getting slightly better. I think she said that almost every year when she was growing up, they would move apartments and always a slight improvement, an extra room or a slightly better address or an appliance that my great-grandmother wanted. And she had the sense that that, that would continue for everyone. Deborah Friedel, thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, Tom. You can read Deborah Friedel's piece in the current issue of the NRB, along with Torrell Moy on Simone Weil, Andrew Hagen on David's story, and Mike Jay on Edgar Allan Poe's science fiction.